This is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson, and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Levoque, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we centre and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. Today, we have Dr. Holly Erskine on the podcast. Dr. Erskine is an epidemiologist and mental health researcher with the School of Public Health at the University of Queensland. She is based at the Queensland Centre for Mental Health Research, where she leads the Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Epidemiology and Services team. Holly's PhD research focused on the global epidemiology of ADHD and conduct disorder, as well as the long-term outcomes associated with these. Holly now leads an international project looking at mental health in adolescents in Kenya, Indonesia, and Vietnam. Holly is also a neurodivergent woman, and she shares with us her experience of synesthesia. So Holly, I remember when we first met years ago working in research that you told me that you had something called synesthesia. Um, and at the time I remember learning about it in, you know, our undergrad psychology degree, but I think it's a little known, uh, yeah, a little known thing. Um, would you be able to tell us a bit more about what is synesthesia? Yeah, absolutely. And look, it was so little known that I had synesthesia and didn't even realize it until um, our third year of psychology, uh, when I just sort of stumbled across um, some research that was being done on it and thought, oh, that's me. Um, (laughs) So synesthesia is I guess the easiest way to explain it is it's essentially crossed wires or broken down walls within the brain where information from one sense um, influences the data you get from another or also within a sense. And with sense, I'm talking about vision and smell and hearing. Um, So even within a sense, you might actually receive two sets of information around like one thing within that sense. Mm -hmm. So I think the easiest way to explain it is to describe what I experienced with synesthesia. And I have graphene colour synesthesia. So that's within the visual sense. And what that means simply is when I look at letters or when I look at numbers, I see obviously what colour they are, you know, in reality, in print or on the screen, but I also see another colour as well. So every letter and every number to me also has a colour that I see as well. So Mm. you can see how that's, uh, I guess, a a crossing within the sense uh, of vision, but there are other kinds uh, as well. So another common one is hearing colour, which is cross senses. So Holly, I wanted to ask about what you actually are perceiving when you say, you know, numbers and letters have another colour dimension to them. So, you know, you were saying there that you can visually see, you know, say it's written in black text or blue text or whatever it might be. When you say that numbers and uh, letters have an additional colour, do you mean that you're also seeing it printed in another colour or do you mean that you are getting the sense of another colour? Can you just explain that a little bit further to us? This is one of the most common and most you know, I guess, justified questions about synesthesia and also one of, I guess, the most difficult to answer as well. 
But as part of my honest thesis, I think I finally found um, a way to answer this. So to me, I guess the answer is almost, you know, I, I see it in my mind, but I also see it in reality as well. So I use the example of if you imagine a colour photograph of a bowl of fruit, you have a yellow banana, red apples, a blue bowl, and so on. So you can see that picture of the bowl of fruit in colour. Um, imagine that. Then someone shows you the exact same colour, uh, sorry, the exact same picture, but in black and white. Now you can, you know, obviously see that that photo is black and white. But there's something in your mind where you can also almost see it as those colours that you saw previously as well. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who's listening and who's interested, it's really easy to do um, on your phone. Just take a photo of something with very clear block colours like uh, fruit or flowers, then flick it to black and white um, after looking at the colour and you'll get a sense, I think, of what synesthesia is like. So unfortunately for me, it's not like I look at a page of a textbook and everything is beautifully multicolored and really interesting. That would be but amazing. There is, I guess this, <laughs> it would be so much better. I would read far more of what I'm supposed to if that was the case. Um, but it is, I guess it's, you know, in your mind's eye, but it is also you can kind of see it as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess for mm-hmm. me, that's how I would describe it. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And say like with your own name, Holly, what yep. colours would come up for you? So I have sort of a, a brownish purple for the H. Uh, o for me is white. L's are sort of a warm orange yellow. Um, and Y's, I guess, are kind of a, a brownish maroon. Mm. So my name isn't particularly pretty <laughs> to me. Um, there are other names I think are, are far prettier um, than mine. But uh, what's also interesting about that actually just reminded me when looking at um, some letters is if you ask non-synesthetes, so people who don't have synesthesia, just randomly, what, uh, you know, colour would you say a certain letter was? There's actually more agreement between people than Mm. you would necessarily um, expect. So Mm. I guess, you know, a question to you both is just if you had to randomly pick a colour for, let's say, Z, what would you go with? I would go with slate grey. I would go with green. (laughs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of people go black for Z. What about A? Red. Red. Yeah. That is one of the most consistent across synesthetes and across non-synesthetes, A being red, interestingly enough. I wonder if that is and has anything to do with, you know, our association of A is for apple. Right, mm-hmm. you know, yep. like the red apple, and it's it's uh, you know, when you were saying before around, um, you know, there's agreement over say what color represents what letter. I always think about uh, how people um, chat about like what color is different subjects at school. You know, like what yep. color is maths? What color is English? Maths for me is always blue. English is always yep. red. Science is always green. Mm-hmm. Maths for me, I have to say, is blue. Even though from my synesthesia, none of those letters are blue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess there's a, another level or another 
you know, parallel experience for some people with graphene colour synesthesia is you get uh, word colours. So it's almost Mm -hmm. like there's a hue across a word. So days of the week for me um, have that. Months of the year as well, although I guess not to the same extent. And also, as you can imagine, um, colour words Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Although you wonder with those, you know, for many people, the letter B is blue. And Mm -hmm. obviously, most of us are taught A is for apple, B is for blue or something Mm -hmm. like that as well. So again, it's which, you know, which came first uh, with that. I wonder um, in different cultures where obviously people have different languages and then different associations with different letters and colours, if they perceive or experience the synesthesia differently than the English language does, like A for apple. I I wonder that as well. I have to say it's not something that I've looked into, but I mean, I I don't see why not, to be Mm -hmm. honest. You know, if it is merely just a a crossing within a sense modality or across them, there's Mm -hmm. no reason why that wouldn't happen and also no reason why there wouldn't be, I guess, similar influences on what Mm -hmm. certain, you know, letters are as well if, you know, I guess thinking in the the Greek alphabet, for example, you know, if you're taught, um, I guess, not A is for alpha but alpha is for, you know, something else Um, and if that's a very standardised colour like apples are often for us, you know, maybe we'd see something like that um, Mm. in different I guess, different languages and different characters uh, as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, we know that language shapes our perception of the world. You know, it's not just a one-way street. So to me, and and again, I'm not kind of across whether this is factual or not, um, but to me it would make a lot of sense that depending on what language you speak, that would shape the, uh, you you know, the way that you're perceiving these different things or even these cross-perceptual experiences. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I believe the word synesthesia, when you bring it down to its definition, actually means perceived together. I guess when we're thinking about something like synesthesia, um, I'm wondering, is this something that you feel like impacts your life day to day? Is it something that's kind of an enjoyable uh, footnote in your experience of humanity? You know, what's the level of um, impact of this and, and what areas of your life does it impact? I guess for me, you know, having not or not remembering a time when I didn't have it, I, I think for me, one of the big benefits of synesthesia or my version is I'm, I'd like to say, a pretty good speller. Um, and I think part of that is because I've got an extra flag for when mm. something is wrong, you know, particularly if it's a blatantly different, you know, colour than what should be in there. Um, I, I think that has actually really helped me. Now, I will caveat that by saying that my mother is a far better speller than I am and doesn't have synesthesia, so I may be drawing a long bow there. But I do find that if I misspell a word, it's often words that have double letters. So vacuum is just, I always misspell that or always have to think twice about that because I don't have that extra flag of a colour being there or not being there that's, you know, supposed to or not supposed to. It's just, hang on, do I do I have an extra blue one here? Am I, am I too much on the on the pink? Um, not that I mentally think about it like that. 
Um, but I think for me, it is actually beneficial like that. Mm-hmm. And similarly, I think remembering numbers um, for the same reason of having that extra flag. Although again, if I do mix up numbers, it's almost guaranteed that it's three, five and seven that I will mix up because they are all different shades of green to me. From what you're saying, it sounds like, you know, having this extra uh, sensory or perceptual cue sort of adds a layer of depth to your orthographic memory, you know, yes. the way that words are spelled, the visual look of it. Um, I'm very jealous. I'm the worst speller <laughs> in the world. <laughs> I think it's a dying sort of skill in terms of necessity, courtesy of spell check um, on Thank Word, God. although <laughs> I think for me at least I can pick the difference between the dictionary being set to US English versus Australian because the S and the Z, thank God, are different colours. So <laughs> that does mm. help me a bit. But, um, you know, I think it's something that I've never found it to have impacted me in a negative way by any means apart from when I was younger and trying to explain this to people and mm. it does sound weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> From my understanding, synesthesia is supposed to be genetic. It's it's something that you're born with, um, just a difference in a person's brain. So I'm just curious, are there any other members of your family that also have synesthesia, are synesthetes? So funny you should ask. When I finally found, you know, the, the label um, for my experience, which is a funny story in and of itself, And I was telling my mum about this and one, she thought it was fascinating because I'd never spoken about, you know, seeing letters in different colours because it's not typically a dinner conversation. Um, And she was telling my grandma who understood it immediately because she hears in colour. So she's very, very musical. Mm -hmm. And she she understood immediately what my mum was describing or you know, I guess how it was experienced, even though she had a different version of synesthesia. Mm-hmm. So my mum was very disappointed that it skipped a generation. <laughs> um, as far as I know, there aren't any other synesthetes in the family, um, mm-hmm. but it, at least for me, there's a couple of us down the female line that have mm-hmm. it. Yeah, that's interesting because I have heard that people who have um, like synesthesia that involves their sense of hearing often have perfect pitch. Um, and are quite musical because, again, it's like an added flag for them of creating music and what the tone is um, or the pitches of what they're creating. They might see the music um, or the musical notes that they're producing. I think so. And it's, you know, even for me not having experienced that particular kind of synesthesia and it occurring across senses, I can still almost imagine what, that's like. Um, And, you know, my grandma was one of those people who could hear something and play it. Um, Mm -hmm. And she actually played the organ as well. And that's all four limbs going um, too. So I think, you know, whether that was, you know, because of her synesthesia, I think probably more likely helped by it because the music runs strong in the family as well. And I guess interesting too, you wonder if that's connected at all. But, you know, again, Mm -hmm. hard to tell, but fun to Mm -hmm. think about. And how common is synesthesia? 
So it's a tricky one, I think, because if it's hard to describe, often it's hard to study and it's hard to find people as well, or often it's the same people being studied over and over again because you've found them um, for the research. The prevalences that I've seen vary quite a bit, and I know that it does vary by type of synesthesia. I think a little bit more of a consistent estimate I've seen is one in 2,000. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe from what I've read that my form of synesthesia, so um, colour graphene, is the most common as mm-hmm. well. But I also wonder if, you know, is it the most common because it's almost the most easy to describe um, mm-hmm. in a way as well? Um, mm-hmm. I believe in terms of prevalence, it's followed by hearing colour as well, the, the one my grandma had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was looking into some of the research around it, um, it said that there was up to 60 different types of synesthesia, um, which makes sense, I guess, because there could be so many different combinations of your different senses that Absolutely. are crossing over each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's exactly it is, you know, there is within the sense and across the sense as well. And then once you start extrapolating from that, there could be a huge number. Mm. And it's not until you try to or there's a reason that you want to describe to someone what you're experiencing, you might not realise that not everyone else experiences Mm. this thing that you experience. And that, that was definitely, you know, for me, it wasn't about realizing that I had synesthesia. It was about realizing that not everyone did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's often such a wild moment, isn't it? When you, you know, are describing something to someone and you're finally getting this light bulb moment that, mm-hmm. oh my God, actually the way that I perceive the world around me is not the same for everyone else. Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about um, our input senses being involved in synesthesia. So our five kind of external senses. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, you know, have three additional senses, our interoceptive skills. So, you know, reading our internal body cues, our vestibular cues, our balance and our proprioceptive cues. So knowing where our body is in space. I'm wondering when we're thinking about synesthesia, is it limited to a crossover of those external input cues or is there people who experience synesthesia with those three more internal senses as well? I guess that's a really good question. I mean, for me, I've only become aware of, you know, the the colour graphene um, Mm. synesthesia And I think, you know, until you listed those three things, I hadn't really thought about, you know, those separately as as senses or, you know, different modalities. Mm. But if it's to do, you know, essentially at its base level, synesthesia is some kind of, you know, cross wires or multiple inputs happening in the brain it's not a long bow to draw that it it would happen. Um, I just, you know, in terms of trying to describe that to mm-hmm. someone else, you know, something mm-hmm. that you innately feel and experience, it would be really difficult to describe mm-hmm. or even know that that is 
different to other people. So long story Mm. short, I'm not sure, but I think it would be very interesting. (laughs) Well, I think that's such a great point around, you know, that difficulty describing it because, you know, you were talking previously, Holly, about how hard it even is to describe differences in your input sensations, you know, your external input sensations. Um, And exactly as you just said, when we then try and describe differences in, you know, our felt experiences internally, that adds another layer of complication, you know, to providing a clear explanation to someone else. So, um, you know, I guess it's a it's a call to the wild that if you're out there and you experience synesthesia with your uh, internal felt sensations, um, send us an email. I'd love to hear mm-hmm. if that's that's out there. Yeah, I have actually worked with quite a few people that have synesthesia, their synesthetes, because synesthesia can be more common in people who are autistic or ADHDers. And yeah, I have had people report to me that say they have a word or a concept, that concept might feel further away in space and time to them or closer towards them in space and time. So it's interesting that you mentioned that, Michelle, but I I could see how that type of synesthesia would be out there. As you were describing that, you know, again, I can't say that that's something I've necessarily experienced, but that made sense to me. I totally understood what you were describing just then. And it's like this, you know, to get all sci-fi for a second, almost like a third dimension that is sitting somewhere because, you know, for me, I'm saying I see something, but I don't um, mm. is essentially what it boils down to. And mm-hmm. so I, it is almost like a different way of experiencing things, you know, or seeing in inverted commas things. I think it's an interesting point about synesthesia is there are these differences in people's perceptions and that they're seeing things or hearing things that most other people can't perceive, yet there doesn't seem to be as much negative uh, perception or press around that. Whereas if you had someone that, you know, for example, had schizophrenia um, or was experiencing psychosis and was seeing or hearing things that aren't there, then all of a sudden, you know, there's a lot of alarm around that and negative perceptions in society around that as well. It sounds to me that probably the difference there is that someone who may be experiencing, you know, psychosis or schizophrenia, the line between what's reality and what's a self-generated, you know, perceptual experience is blurred a little bit. Um, And, you know, definitely from what you were describing, Holly, it sounds like you're very aware that you're holding this sort of um, perception in your mind, but you're aware that the colors themselves, like the text, for example, is still black or is still blue or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of this kind of spacious mind um, analogy that I like to use where, you know, you're holding more than one perceptual experience at once in your mind. Does that sort of sound right or? Yeah, I think so. And I, I guess for me, you know, what I experience is I look at something that is there and I have another bit of information that comes through or I experience it in a slightly different way or I experience something additional. Whereas, you know, individuals experiencing psychosis or schizophrenia, you know, they are having, you know, can have hallucinations or delusions Mm -hmm. and are really negatively impacted by that because it is that split from 
realities. I just think it's an interesting like point of difference, if that makes sense. Obviously, there is that impact. You know, to what extent do does a neurological difference impact someone and their ability to function in society or the quality of life? Um, but yeah, I just think it's interesting the difference between the two. So, Holly, can you tell us a little bit about your honours research project into synesthesia? Yeah, absolutely. So, I have to admit I did have to revisit this um, because it was a little while ago. But what we actually wanted to look at in my honours research is to get a better sense of perhaps that what level of the brain is this synesthesia happening? So, is it a, a... a lower order process or is it a higher order process? So what that means is essentially, is it happening in the eyeballs or is it happening in the brain? And we can kind of look at that by seeing how influenced by external stimuli um, a synesthete's experience is. So can we sort of skew the perception a bit by putting hues of colour over letter um, or also by changing the context as well? Uh, So what we did is um, everyone's familiar, I think, with, let's say, digital um, numbers. So thinking about the the old school uh, radio clocks uh, where we essentially have, what is it, eight lines, I think, um, to create the the numbers uh, with. So what we did is we asked synesthetes to identify the colour of a letter that was presented in the middle of a three by three grid, so nine letters altogether. And those letters or number were presented in that digital font. So what that means is that an S and a 5 look exactly the same, also a 2 and a Z look exactly the same, as do an I and a 1. But what we found is that when we presented, um, let's say, the 5 or S, um, the colour was determined by whether it was surrounded by letters or by numbers. So the participant in our study was taking in uh, those what we call contextual cues. So they were determining, okay, this is a letter based on, you know, this surrounding and I'm going to say that, you know, S is for me black because that's what S is. Um, So that means that there's some higher order processes going on um, in the brain. So it's not sort of happening lower down and the actual sort of, you know, eyeballs, so to say. What we then also did was we wanted to see, well, can we, you know, I guess use some external stimuli to shift someone's colour when they experience synesthesia? So we presented the same letters and numbers, but without the participant knowing, we would either put a slightly pink hue or a slightly blue hue over the numbers or letters to see if that would influence it. So, for example, for me, um, I is sort of a yellowy colour. So, if it was presented with a blue hue and that impacted my synesthesia, then it would start to shift a little bit more green. However, for all of our synesthetes, we didn't see that kind of impact. So, they weren't impacted by that kind of, you know, sneaky colour hue. So, to me, that sounds like what you found essentially was that it's 
all based on higher order processing and it's not really impacted at all by visual processing or by the eyeballs, as you were saying. Um, It's all this kind of higher order um, actual visual processing as opposed to visual perception. That's exactly what we took from these results as well. Now, I will say that our sample size by virtue of the research that we do was quite small. I believe it was around five or six, Mm -hmm. Um, but it was consistent across these five or six. And it is, um, you know, relatively consistent with what other studies had found at the time um, as well. And I think when you think about synesthesia and how it occurs in other senses as well, it, it does make sense that it's occurring at that sort of higher, you know, level of the brain. Super interesting. And I mean, it makes sense if it's such a rare, um, like neurological difference, it's going to be hard to get enough participants, you know, yes. for the larger studies. <laughs> Particularly in honours research, um, yes. <laughs> as anyone who's been to uni and has done anything like that will know. <laughs> mm, definitely. Hi, Michelle here. Just letting you know about an upcoming webinar I'm running on women on the autism spectrum. The webinar is this Thursday, 17th of March, starting at 6pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. We cover what is autism and how does it look different for girls and women, the diagnostic process, mental health, meltdowns and burnout, women on the spectrum and relationships, and strategies to manage areas of challenge in professional and personal life. If you'd like to sign up or find out more about this or other upcoming webinars, visit the groups page on the Redland Psychologist website, redlandpsychologists.com.au forward slash groups. There'll be a link in the show notes to the episode. So Holly, we know that you work in research and in the field of epidemiology. Can you tell us a bit about what is epidemiology and what sort of work you do in that field? Yeah, absolutely. So epidemiology, uh, when people hear it, it sounds like a word that almost has something to do with skin or the epidermis. But what we're actually looking at is uh, patterns of a a disease or a condition um, in the population. So I guess a lot of people unknowingly have become more familiar with epidemiology, courtesy of COVID. So we're looking at existing cases in the population, new cases, um, how quickly those cases recover, um, the severity with which they are experiencing the condition. Is it differing by age or by sex or by other demographic factors and also uh, any kind of deaths or mortality due to the condition? as well. So basically epidemiology is just a fancy way of saying looking at patterns of a disease or a condition in the population. So Holly, you primarily look into the epidemiology around ADHD. Can you give us a brief sort of spiel on what you've found generally, uh, what your research looks at specifically, um, and what are sort of the interesting things that have come out, you know, in your opinion? Yeah, absolutely. So My research, I guess, focuses on ADHD as well as mental disorders more broadly um, among children and adolescents. I think the younger populations are a 
really challenging when it comes to epidemiology. They're often challenging to to measure for a variety of reasons, um, both in terms of the tools we use and also just logistically uh, as well. So what I look at is the prevalence of mental disorders among uh, children and adolescents. Uh, And I had a particular focus on ADHD and conduct disorder as part of my PhD a few years ago. So, Holly, in your PhD on ADHD, you measured the global burden of disease. Can you explain to us what is the burden of disease in terms of an epidemiological definition? So burden of disease is essentially taking prevalence one step further and looking at not just how common is a condition in the population, but what impact is it having in the population? Now, I will, I guess, qualify this for anyone who's unfamiliar with disease burden or burden of disease by saying that we're not looking at the burden that people place on the population. That is absolutely not what disease burden looks at. What we are interested in is we look at the burden of that condition on the individual and then sum that up to the population so we can see actually what's happening at a population level. And this kind of data is super important for governments when making decisions. Um, The famous line is, if you don't count it, it doesn't count. So making sure that conditions like ADHD um, and even other mental conditions more broadly are included is hugely important. And I saw in some of your research that the Global Burden of Disease study that you were participating in and directing for your PhD research, that that was the first time ADHD had actually been included in a Global Burden of Disease study. It was. So the Global Burden of Disease study has been around for a while, um, since 1990, and it's been done by different institutions here and there. But it was in 2010 where it got taken over by the University of Washington in Seattle, um, and there was a big rethink on how things were done. And one of those was mental disorders and what mental disorders were included. So previously, it had only been a much smaller list, things like depression and anxiety, which of course we know do have prevalence among young people, but we were missing a lot. Um, So ADHD, conduct disorder, um, autism spectrum disorders and eating disorders. So GBD, so that's the shorthand version of the Global Burden of Disease Study, GBD 2010 included all of those disorders for the first time. And even just that inclusion was really important because then you're putting things like ADHD you know, through the same, I guess, standard as things like cancer and smoking and other things when we think about global health. So from an epidemiologist's point of view, this is a massive step forward in recognising these conditions um, at an international level. And I guess importantly, the GBD study is updated every one to two years. So ADHD was not just included as a one-off, but it's constantly now being updated with with new data um, as well. So, you know, it's receiving, I guess, the recognition that it needs. I think that's so important um, that ADHD be included and be recognised. And it sounds like the Global Burden of Disease Study is really looking at 
what is the impact on the individual in terms of things like quality of life, um, being able to work um, without supports with ADHD? And then how does that translate to like things in the population? So what GBD looks at or how the big measure that it uses is disability adjusted life years. So all that means is one DALI, so epidemiologists, we love our abbreviations, one DALI equals one healthy year of life lost. So it's a healthy year of life that, you know, a a person of a certain age didn't get. Now, you can lose a healthy year of life due to two things, either premature mortality or disability. And disability, working back through our complicated methodology, essentially boils down to two things. How common is it? And how bad does it impair people? Um, So then we essentially use that to sum up to the population. Now, GBD, you know, because it looks at so many different conditions, can only look at, I guess, a more targeted um, burden measure. But there are other studies that look at qualities, so quality-adjusted life years. Um, And I think for me, um, and we might touch on this with my research, One of the things that GBD, as fabulous as it is, doesn't look at is the impact of a condition on that person's family or the impact of that condition on that person but later in life rather than now, which for something like ADHD, which often has relatively high prevalence um, in the key kind of education and early working years, can really have some significant impacts um, later on in life as well. Mm -hmm. So I think the inclusion in GBD is an incredibly important starting point for ADHD and other mental disorders of of childhood, but it's a starting point. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. the more research, the better. With good data, we can make good decisions. So I think it's important to say at this point that you know, when we're talking about things like research, epidemiology, um, investigating things like global burden of disease, the language that we use can seem quite pejorative and quite pathologizing. Um, It's really important, though, that when we do discuss these things, we are using the language that is used in the study because that's how these things have been measured. And I think it brings up a really tricky and thorny sort of dichotomy where we're moving now more into an understanding that things like ADHD, things like autism are just differences in the way that people experience the world, the way that, you know, our neurology is set up. And also they can contribute to a lot of difficulty living in the world as it stands. So, you know, it's sort of this discrepancy or dichotomy between, you know, what is difference versus what is disability. And I don't think it needs to be an either or, it can be a both and, you know, you can have aspects of your neurodivergence that you think are amazing and that are amazing. And being neurodivergent in and of itself certainly doesn't make you disabled in and of itself. Um, But lots of people who are ADHDers or are autistic or have other neurodivergences, there's certainly aspects of that that are disabling by virtue of living in a society as, you know, it's set up in the way that it is. So I just wanted to sort of caveat that a little bit. I think, Michelle, as well, it's an important lesson for researchers too, because the reason we do research 
is to improve people's lives. Mm. And in order to do good research, we need to be very specific with how we measure things, how we refer to things and so on. But there is then that disconnect when we try to do what we call research translation. Mm -hmm. So translating that into policy changes, into uh, clinical practice and so on. So I think, you know, there there is both uh, as well. And for, you know, people being able to see why certain research terms that sound judgmental are being used. Um, It's not coming from a judgmental, I guess, space, but also for researchers, um, particularly researchers like myself who aren't clinicians, to understand, I think, how that may be uh, interpreted as well. Yeah, and something, I guess, with that that... Holly, you and I had a brief discussion on is um, you were saying like in your field of epidemiology, you were wanting to use the word disorder to make sure that you're capturing like the very specific information for the studies and not just capturing general um, psychological distress that isn't to the point where it's really impacting someone or their quality of life. And then we have that system, you know, in the medical model and the DSM that's saying, well, if something is impacting you to a certain point, then we chuck the word disorder, you know, on top of whatever label that is. So when you're doing epidemiological research, um, yeah, you made the point that it's using that word disorder um, because otherwise the study could become useless because it's including everything, if that makes sense. Exactly. That is absolutely it. And I think that's where, you know, from what we've all been talking about, the aim is the same because to have what we consider a disorder, you must have impairment or distress. So if you don't have impairment or distress, essentially you don't meet criteria for a disorder. And perhaps I think that's where, you know, the idea of um, neurodivergence comes in as well. So when I say, you know, ADHD is a mental disorder, I'm talking about ADHD with impairment and distress because of these certain experiences. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I guess, lumping anyone who might have these kinds of experiences Mm -hmm. in altogether. Um, But at the same time, without, um, you know, going on for a paragraph, it's, it's difficult, I think, to give it the nuance that it needs. Yeah, I think we're definitely at a point in our understanding of, you know, this sort of field where we just don't have great language for it yet. And we're trying to shoehorn a lot of these different sort of ideas and concepts that we're now um, getting across as a society into this very limited kind of language scope that we have, you know, the language structure that we have, you know, from the medical model and from, you know, what's already existing. It's really interesting, Holly, what you're saying there around, you know, if you, if there's not distress or impairment, then technically you actually don't meet criteria for a disorder. And that's, you know, absolutely, I completely agree with that. That's, you know, the the rules of basically diagnosing a disorder. What I find as a clinician who does a lot of diagnostic work is this really tricky kind of gray area now where our understanding of what uh, different neurodivergences actually look like. Someone could walk in and it's like, yeah, it's very clear that you're experiencing this neurodivergence, but it doesn't seem to be impacting or affecting you 
greatly. And I guess then in terms of diagnostics, because we only have this limited model of, okay, well, if you're different from most people or you experience the world differently, then that is a disorder. But someone saying, well, I do experience the world differently, but I'm not experiencing distress or impairment. And then our only other option is, well, you must not be experiencing the world differently then. Do do you see what I'm saying? It's sort of this really kind of, you know, only two boxes and it's either or. I feel my frustration point around this is, yeah, just our lack of language, adequate language to describe the, you know, nuances and spectrum of experiences that people have. I could not agree more. Um, And, you know, I think that also lends itself to you know, some of the work that I'm currently doing where we are measuring, you know, and I say mental disorders um, in non-Western contexts as well, which adds, you know, not the same but similar challenges as well um, because mental health in and of itself exists on, you know, a spectrum. You are putting a, drawing a line based on, you know, some kind of diagnostic criteria about, what is, you know, I guess normal or human experience or within the spectrum of human experience up to something that may be distressing um, and impacting someone. And we then try to take something that's already challenging enough in countries like Australia and the US, and then we try to apply that elsewhere and wonder why we're not getting um, the same results. And I think this whole lack of nuance in the language as well, you know, comes from, I would say, physical health came first, obviously, and you either had something or you didn't. Um, You have a virus or you don't have a virus. The virus makes you sick or it doesn't. You know, Mm. I'm sure the um, medical practitioners will come after me for that, so please don't put my email address anywhere. (laughs) But I guess, um, you know, we didn't, we don't have the nuance because previously we haven't required it. Um, mm-hmm. whereas now I think we really, we really do. And yeah, I, I think it's so important to be having these conversations, um, between clinicians and researchers about the language that's being used, um, to create greater awareness around some of these issues on both ends of, uh, mental health and disability, um, and yeah, it really raises up some questions around disability, how to measure it, what does it mean for people, um, which is really important. So, Holly, can you tell us a little bit about what your research actually found in terms of the global burden of disease uh, for ADHDs? Yeah. So I guess what my research focused on was first the epidemiology of ADHD and conduct disorder, but I'll just focus on ADHD. And then I also looked at the burden of disease um, due to ADHD as well. So the study that I did, which was published in 2013, so I don't know where time goes, Uh, but what we found was that the prevalence of ADHD globally um, in ages 5 to 19 was 2.2% for males and uh, 0.7% for females. So that's across the globe. 
That's really interesting in terms of the difference between, you know, males and females. And Monique and I have chatted a little bit around, um, you know, why females with ADHD are underdiagnosed. Um, Could you tell us a little bit around that difference across culture, though? Do you find that there's major differences in the rate of diagnosis, you know, between countries or between cultures? Yeah, so... I think something important to note with the data that we use um, in GBD for mental disorders is we use what's called household surveys. So it's exactly what it sounds like, um, an interviewer going to a household that's randomly selected and interviewing either the parent or the young person themselves. So we don't actually include data from clinics or hospitals for that reason where If you include that data, then you're measuring the people who could access that treatment um, or were able to access that treatment or, you know, that treatment was available because in many countries, um, those kinds of services aren't available or aren't widely available, particularly for young people. So with the GBD data, the models are based on, I guess, perhaps less data than you would initially expect but it's because it's only those surveys for the most part um, that are used. So I think that's where, you know, when we talk about male and female differences, those differences were found. um, And at least from this data, it wasn't because, you know, males tended to be taken more to hospitals or anything like that. Now, that being said, I will caveat that by that, we haven't gone into the whole what instrument do you use um, to diagnose um, or assess people? Most countries, I would include Australia in this, cannot send a whole team of psychologists and psychiatrists out to do household surveys. So often you do have trained lay interviewers using a very, very structured tool that follows DSM, which is our, I guess, dictionary for mental disorders. Um, What that means is psychologists and psychiatrists and Monique and Michelle, you'd be well more placed to speak about this than I am, can actually investigate and ask follow-up questions and can pick up on little things and go down, you know, different interview routes to, to uncover, I think, a bit more. These tools for the purposes of consistency don't have that mm-hmm. ability. Um, so I, I guess I will caveat the data with that. And you can see from, you know, learning about epidemiology here that there's a lot of trade-offs. So we don't use hospital data because we only then um, get a sense of a certain sample of people but we do have limitations when we do these household surveys as well. And I think that's just the nature of research, right? Mm. You know, if you're wanting to limit the impact of one extraneous variable, that's going to open the door to something else. So I think as researchers, you do your best to get the most clean data sample that you can, um, but there's always trade-offs. And Mm. yeah, I don't think there's much that you can do about that, unfortunately. Yeah. So I guess... You know, there were some differences by country, but we'd be very hesitant to say that there are true differences because of limited data. Um, So when we're talking about modelling, you know, fancy word for guessing um, based on the data, what we do with a country is we look at, do we have data for that country? Okay, no. All right. Do we have data for the surrounding countries? No. 
do we have data for that continent? Okay, we've got one study. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so you can see where, you know, the yeah. okay. data deserts really come into play. Uh, I will say, though, because of studies like GBD, putting ADHD not just on the map in terms of a condition, but also in terms of something that, you know, needs more research, Um we're, we're seeing more research being done just because GBD has found there's not much data. Mm-hmm. You know, that in mm-hmm. itself is an important finding. And it's because of GBD that I'm now able to, you know, work um, on surveys in Kenya, in Indonesia and Vietnam looking at mental disorders in young people and one of those is ADHD. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay. And what did you find in terms of the the burden of disease for ADHD in that study or the DALIs? So I guess globally at the time, so this these were sort of 2013 studies, which means they were based on GBD 2010 data. Globally, around 500,000 DALIs were due to ADHD. So that's 500,000 years of healthy life lost um, in ADHD's case, due to disability. In terms of, I guess, the global scale of things, um, I'm sure there are epi people listening to that. They know that, you know, it sounds like a big number, but often it can actually be seen as a small number as well. But that number is also constantly being updated because ADHD, as part of the Global Burden of Disease Study, new data is added um, constantly and new results are published um, every year. So, you know, it's still 500,000 years of healthy life Mm -hmm. lost due to ADHD, you know, in terms of the disorder as we spoke about before. Mm -hmm. And Holly, just to clarify, that's across the globe? It is, yes. Okay. So did your study actually look at any long-term outcomes or best ways to support that burden of disease or reduce that burden of disease for the individual? So what I did as part of my PhD was initially I was very focused on the prevalence and the burden. And as part of that, I was looking for a reference, meaning a study or a publication that actually looked at the long-term outcomes of ADHD and conduct disorder. And there were a lot of individual studies looking at different cohorts of people, so people they'd followed over time, but no study that had kind of brought that all together for all different kinds of outcomes. Um, So that ended up being the last paper um, in my PhD was looking at the long-term outcomes of ADHD. So outcomes for health measures like um, other mental disorders or physical health conditions, as well as, I guess I would say, psychosocial measures. So things even through to driving incidents um, and vehicular accidents and things like that. I guess I'm one of those people where I'd just rather do everything all in one go than separate it out into different papers. Mm -hmm. Um, So my last PhD paper was where we brought all of that together and looked at wherever we could the long-term outcomes of ADHD across multiple studies. And what were some of the long-term outcomes that you found? Because a lot of, I guess, the research and the literature and even support for ADHD is is around school and child age people 
And really a lot of the support and research drops away when you become an adult and there is a scarcity of research and even treatment um, data available for treating older adults um, and supporting them to live a healthy life and have a good quality of life with ADHD. So I guess, Monique, you probably pointed out a bit of a weakness of my study, which is fine. Um, always room for future <laughs> Sorry. growth. <laughs> Sorry, Holly. <laughs> um, that's all right. We'll cut it out. No. <laughs> no, look, I think the available studies um, used existing cohorts or groups of people that had been followed over time. So ADHD tended um, to be measured during childhood and adolescence. And then these people were followed into adulthood. Now, it was really rare that their current ADHD, you know, status would actually be measured at that point. So really, it was more, I guess, about looking at, um, you know, that limitation I mentioned with GBD, where it didn't look at future outcomes, was looking at, well, what is the future impact of, you know, a condition like ADHD, where someone is experiencing impairment and distress. And it was really wide ranging. So there were um, what we call adverse outcomes, um, so negative things um, that happened in relation to academic achievement. So, um, you know, dropout or failure to complete high school, which, as you can imagine, then resulted in a big percentage who didn't move on to tertiary education if they had desired. Uh, there were also you know, other things around employment. And you can imagine that uh, if you have struggled um, academically due to, you know, being impacted, then that is going to impact your employment outcomes as well. So you start to see how these outcomes don't exist in isolation. You know, an adverse outcome on one thing can really start to have impacts on other areas um, of life as well. Now, if I can just caveat that with this doesn't mean that, you know, everyone who is negatively impacted by ADHD will have a negative outcome. This is not a, a self-fulfilling prophecy at all. What we more wanted to look at was getting that, I guess, evidence-based advocacy. So, you know, is this a disorder that is associated with, you know, long-term adverse outcomes? When the answer is yes, there is, I guess, more, you know, evidence and justification and impetus for, you know, addressing this early on. And I think, you know, clinicians, researchers, all of us, you know, often say early intervention is the key. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to mental health, it's one of the most difficult things. That's a really interesting point, Holly, because I know personally um, working as a clinician, a lot of the time when I do see older teens or adults come through for a diagnosis of ADHD, not all the time, but a lot of the time, if they're struggling in their life, you can very clearly work that back to their experience in high school. Um, and that might be, you know, maybe they had a difficult experience in high school, either because they didn't get the support that they needed. Maybe it was particularly a bad fit high school for them. Um, maybe their personality contributed to, you know, oh, well, 
effort. It's just high school. So I really commonly see exactly what you were referring to, Holly, that, you know, Mm. when we have adults who are struggling mentally, struggling to find employment, um, despite having average or above intelligence, um, a lot of the time we can trace it back to that difficult experience in high school. And sometimes it's not always just the, you know, um, okay, well, you didn't complete high school, which makes it harder for you to get follow-up education, which makes it harder Mm. for you to get a job. Sometimes another contributing factor to that too is the development of this sort of idea or self-perception that I'm just not good at this stuff. I just can't do this stuff. And it's sort of like this learned helplessness, um, which takes a really long time to work through as an adult. And then also, you know, you can have the flip side where you may have had someone who absolutely excelled at school, but that's because they had so much anxiety. It's almost like the anxiety was the stick, like whipping them um, Mm -hmm. and making them do really well. And then we get to adulthood and maybe we're doing really well professionally, but we get absolute burnout. Um, And Mm -hmm. then we have sort of a similar level of, you know, burden of disease, as we would say Mm -hmm. in epidemiology, um, but for a different reason. And I guess I would also say with these studies as well that, again, most of these came from, you know, what we talked about before with those household surveys. So the level of or even presence of treatment or clinical diagnosis was unclear. And, you know, even potentially within those being treated, there's not often good ways to see is that evidence-based treatment, you know, how long has it been going on for? Are there comorbid conditions and so on? Mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, the study that I conducted, we'd say, you know, these are long-term outcomes associated with ADHD. So we don't say mm-hmm. caused by um, because we know that there's a significant association, but we don't know the mechanisms um, mm-hmm. of that. And, you know, yeah. it could be from within the person or also external as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about in your outcome study about the effect on driving and motor vehicle accidents? Because that's actually a little known, I guess, facet of something that can be related to ADHD that, yeah, a lot of other mental health professionals or ADHDers aren't aware of. I have to say it did take me by surprise that there were, you know, as many studies as there were on driving behaviours when you're coming at it from a health perspective. Now, by many, you know, I guess I mean six, um, but these are six separate studies, you know, all looking at different groups uh, of people. So what we found, so I guess I should say, what we looked at was determined by what the studies measured. And for driving in particular, we could look at accidents. We could look at accidents where the person was at fault. Um, We could look at accidents uh, with injury. We could also look at, you know, citations or or getting pulled over and and ticketed, um, DUIs or license, you know, being revoked or suspended. I guess one of the ones that was interesting to me was that there wasn't a significant difference between the number of um, accidents between um, those with ADHD or ADHDers. But where we did see a difference was, I guess, the severity of the accident. So accidents with injury, um, you know, ADHDers were 
you know, it's two and a half to three times more likely to be involved in an accident with injury, which means a more serious accident. I guess you can extrapolate that. Um, you know, I, I guess I'd be interested um, in a perfect world, if I could, to redo these analyses again, see if there have been some more studies um, that have come out since then. But it is, I think, just quite interesting um, mm-hmm. that, you know, we see the, a difference in the severity of accident. We also saw that um, at-fault accidents were around two times higher um, in ADHDers than, mm-hmm. than others um, without ADHD. Um, you know, again, I think those particular um, analyses were based on four studies, so not four people, four studies. Um, but again, it's it's just something that I think as health practitioners, it's not something we automatically think about, you know, driving or employment or, or things like that. Mm. Well, yeah, if you don't have a car license, in Australia at least, it's very difficult to get to work. Um, exactly. And, yeah, uh, and, like, this is anecdotal, but I've noticed a pattern with a lot of people um, where maybe they got their driver's license later on in life than other people in their age cohort. Maybe there's been some impulsivity or judgment issues with um, being an ADHD and driving as well. Um, and there can be other stuff going on like, uh, disorientation. Um, and you know, I guess that awareness of where your body is in space when you're driving and making those split second judgments while driving. Yep, definitely. And we did find based on five studies that ADHD is where a close to two times more likely to have their license revoked or suspended, mm-hmm. which is consistent when you think about the, the at-fault accidents uh, mm-hmm. as well. Monique, those are all very uh, great hypotheses, very grounded in, in fact. Um, <laughs> I have a left-of-field hypothesis. So, you know, we actually know as well, really interestingly, that people who are more optimistic are more likely to get in car accidents um, because they're less likely to be, you know, it's kind of where is your attentional focus, right? They're less likely to be taking in um, perhaps, you know, negative attentional information. I don't actually know what the prevalence is with, you know, ADHDs and optimism. Anecdotally, all the ADHDs I know are insanely optimistic. So I'm wondering, and I did say left of field, so don't fact check me on this, but I'm wondering if, you know, just a high level of optimism might contribute Mm. to that as well. Food for thought. Um, I was probably thinking it it could be more an inattention thing, to be honest, Michelle. Look, like look, you're <laughs> probably right, but I'm gonna go with the optimism. They're just so okay. optimistic. <laughs> I, I guess just knowing, you know, like the DSM five, so our kind of you know, ADHD dictionary, yeah. optimism and risk-taking behaviors makes sense to me that those two potentially would go together. Now I'm not talking from, you know, my research base, you know, this is sort of my left of field logic, putting two things together. But if you are more optimistic and you're more inclined, you know, towards risk-taking behaviours, 
you therefore think the outcome is going to be better, so you might be more likely to take the risk. So there could be some interesting overlap there. I I guess I have to say I'm not familiar with the optimism literature. Thanks, Thanks, Holly. I'm going to take that as full backing for my hypothesis. You heard it here first. (laughs) See, she's being optimistic. She's going, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah, so I think um, some of the stuff in Holly's outcome study really shows that, yeah, how ADHD can impact a person differs from person to person, but there probably hasn't been enough research around it. And hopefully since your study was published, there has been more outcomes research and it just shows how it can affect different areas of an adult's life and an older adult's life. Um, Because often when we move from childhood to adulthood, there is a lot less structure. There are more responsibilities. Um, And yeah, just I think it's important to have ongoing research in this area so we can look at how do people who are ADHD is, how do they need to be supported? And we can use it as justification, like with government and funding to look at uh, supports and what areas need the most support for people. And just talking about that, Holly mentioned that the global burden of disease studies, you can actually find them on the internet. You don't need to be a researcher to actually have a look through them. So, you know, if you're interested in in this or you want to use some of this evidence-based research to have advocacy um, for what your needs are um, or what your community's needs are, go for it. I would also advise having a look at the Deloitte document uh, which ADPAR, the Australian ADHD Professionals Association, put together. And it really summarises um, a lot of the research, including the Global Burden of Disease study. And in the Deloitte document, um, it says that ADHD was estimated to cost Australians 40890 DALIs in 2019, And the total cost associated with the loss of well-being for ADHDs was estimated to be $7.6 billion. So not only is that a massive cost in like loss of quality of life and life for the individual with ADHD, but also for the community and the government. Yeah, and it just shows that uh, ADHDs in Australia need more support and more funding. And you can use these figures for your advocacy work. So, for example, I quoted uh, the $7.6 billion uh, loss of well-being when advocating in the change.org petition for adults with ADHD to be able to access the equal amount of medications on the PBS that people who have a diagnosis of ADHD in childhood can access at the moment. So thank you so much, Holly, for coming and chatting with us today, both about your experience of synesthesia and about your research into ADHD. It's been super insightful and super interesting hearing about, you know, your experience and your research as well. 
So look, thank you both so much for having me. This is a new experience for me doing a, a podcast both on my synesthesia. So, you know, I guess me as a neurodivergent woman and then also my ADHD research uh, as well. I guess to everyone, um, if you have questions about synesthesia or questions about ADHD, um, if you Google, always make sure you Google evidence-based. <laughs> <laughs> Very excellent point. For anyone who is interested, if you Google GBD compare, that's where all the publicly available GBD results can be found. And even better, they're not in big overwhelming tables. It's all fun, interactive um, graphics that are done. Um, and I guess I'd just like to give a shout out um, to Dr. Alizé Ferrari and the GBD team who do all of this work from a small office um, in Wacol in Brisbane. Thank you so much, Holly. Thanks, Holly. Thanks, guys. Want more neurodivergent content? Head to our page on Patreon. Our Patreon supporters receive exclusive and additional content ranging from resources, additional information on episode content, responses to listener questions, book reviews, and mental health tip sheets. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on our website, www.ndwomanpod.com. We really appreciate your support on this journey as we aim to make quality psychological and mental health care information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the name The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.